Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider in ABA services all across the country. I'm your host, Richie Plush, and I'm excited to share a conversation with you uh, with a former colleague of mine. Dr. Albert Knapp and I have known each other for years, and it was nice to be able to sit down with him and hear uh, about a book he recently wrote. The book title is Parenting a Child with Autism Spectrum Disorder, Practical Strategies to Strengthen Understanding, Communication, and Connection. It was really great thoughtful conversation um, about using accessible language when we're doing parent education and really trying to help families uh, in a way that is uh, accessible and palatable to them and their needs. Um, Again, I've known Dr. Knapp for several years. He was part of the Learn Behavioral Network at one point, and it was great to see uh, all the things he's done since his time in our organization. Dr. Albert Knapp received his doctorate in clinical psychology from Argosy University. He is a clinical psychologist in California a board-certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level, and a registered play therapist supervisor. Dr. Knapp completed his doctoral research on studying the effect of autism spectrum disorder on parent stress, anxiety, and coping. He has taught at the graduate level for applied behavior analysis courses at various universities and has presented his research findings at multiple professional conferences across the country. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Knapp, thank you so much for jumping on our podcast this week. I appreciate you being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm gonna, I want us to start with a question that I've never asked you before, and I've known you for many years, but I've never asked you this question. How did you get into the field of ABA? So, you know, it kind of just happened. I was uh, in undergrad, and I had seven units left to graduate. I've taken every single psychology course that was to offer and I was warned by my advisor, there's, if you don't have a minor, you're not going to have enough credits to graduate. So I didn't have a minor. So I ended up working um, at a private school for children with autism. And I was essentially like a school aide, like a classroom aide. And I worked with a kid one-to-one who was pretty typical uh, autistic and pretty severely autistic. And that's how I got into the field at ABA. It was a school that did applied behavior analysis. Um, and I worked in a classroom. I feel like that's so many people's stories, right? They they weren't sure what to do and, and they tried this and then they decided this was it and then jumped in full full speed ahead. Is that kind of how you felt? Yes, it definitely was. Um, and I'm glad I did because I've done it pretty much my entire professional career so far. And then since since that time, you've gone on to um, you know work in in-home services, right? Bring the ABA therapy into homes and clinics and tell us about your practice now. Yeah, so I pretty much done every position within like um, a <laughs> ABA service provider. Um, and then I, during that time, I also got my doctoral degree. I took, I call a one year off from ABA, the one year I did my pre-doc internship, I guess two years off from ABA. And then I did my postdoc internship, both in child mental health. Um, mm-hmm. So I did that. And then I um, actually then got really interested in psychological assessment. And I started doing diagnostic assessments, assessing kids with autism. And then that kind of parlayed into a multifaceted organization that I currently run called Albert Knapp Associates, which provides mental health therapy to 
all children and teens, no matter what their diagnosis is, um, ABA therapy, you know, in the homes and schools, and we also do psychological testing. So we find out exactly what's, you know, going on and if it's autism or not, and then we plug them into the appropriate treatment. That's so fantastic. I'm hearing more and more about this need for mental health services, not just in the ABA community, but in the special needs community and in the community at large. Um, what are some things that you're noticing just since COVID started that, that families are needing more support with? So since COVID has started, there's definitely been a large increase in both anxiety in children, probably a lot more than would be anticipated. And we're also seeing a lot of depression because believe it or not, kids actually enjoy going to school. <laughs> they enjoy the structure and routine of being in a classroom and they enjoy seeing their friends. So even though you may have a kiddo that has a bad day or grumbles about having to go, now that they're not going, I know a lot more kids are missing it complaining that they can't go to school and feel really feeling kind of alone and isolated. For, for us, I'm thinking about for me and my kids, right? Just trying to find them social opportunities. It's really hard, right? It's really hard for families to do that and do that safely and keep kids really engaged with learning at the same time. It is. It's a real challenge, especially for working parents um, to juggle their job responsibilities of also now being stay at home stay-at-home worker, stay-at-home parent, stay-at-home teacher, like they have a lot to juggle and providing those socialization opportunities. There's so many different things to consider and it's, and kids don't quite get it. Like they, they understand that, like, you know, there's like a pandemic going on, but mm -hmm. they don't think about that when they're playing with their friends, right? They don't think about that if they're going to share some food or they don't think about that if they cough or sneeze next to a friend. Like it doesn't right. ring a bell in that moment. So there's a lot of challenges with socialization. But I will say as a society, I think we've been rather resilient, but we've seen such an increase in virtual offerings from all over the place where, and people have been learning to connect with people in other ways. So I, I will say that we've been somewhat adaptive. And I think that that really speaks to the human spirit to find ways to connect with each other and find ways to really support one another. Right. I, I just, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm, every time I, I hear your perspective, I think about how it relates to me and my kids. And, you know, my kids are scared about coughing. And so they're, they either run into the bathroom or they, um, they kind of pull a blanket over their head sometimes. You know, my no. son, you know he's like, I don't want to get anybody sick. And so not that he has COVID or anything, but just, you know, his kids cough or sneeze. And so it's just interesting to see that the, the, the way the world is, is really having an impact on yeah. our children and our clients and their families. Definitely. And the kids are much more like alert and hypervigilant about what they're doing. And they, that causes them anxiety. Like they shouldn't be worried about that when they cough, right? That shouldn't be something that crosses their mind. <laughs> right, right. I do have to ask, you know, I feel like you've kind of always been on this trend of, or, you know, this trajectory, I guess I should say, of blending mental health with um, applied behavior analysis. Is that something that you thought of early on in your career? Is that something you just decided to dive into? How did you get to this, that point? With combining yeah, that's a really great question. That's a, a, yeah, that's a very great question. And you're absolutely right. Um, I will say that I first realized that when I started my doctoral program, I went to a school that was called the generalist school. So it was a generalist program, but I had a lot of psychologists who were professors who all were psychodynamic. 
and me being a behaviorist, behavior analyst specifically, I was definitely the minority. And I was constantly kind of pushing and challenging the psychoanalytic theory of thought. And there was such a divide um, in the field. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very like sort of separate thing. Um, and I just didn't quite get it. And I noticed that when I first started my doctoral program, I remember my very first American Psychological Association conference that I went to, and I went mm. to whatever division of behavior analysis, as I, I forget at this moment in time, but I went to that meeting and there were three other people there. So it was such a small, tiny group of people within APA, and it was so disheartening to me that behavior analysis was kind of broken away from sort of general mental health. And I realized that that shouldn't be the case. You know, there should be a way to bring this together more synonymously. Um, and I got to do that a little bit when I did my pre-doc work. I worked um, at an adolescent drug treatment center. So that everyone that was there was there because they um, had a drug pass and they were in the juvenile drug court system. So using a lot of behavior analytic strategies to help the, while I was their individual therapist, really helped meet their goals and keep them motivated and help them, you know, kick their drug habit as well as improve their general mental functioning. So that was where I kind of got to see the practice and like the marriage of the two work really well together. But even there, getting the results, I was met with resistance from my supervisor who wasn't a behavior analyst, who didn't quite understand like exactly what BCBAs did. They didn't quite get like how we're modifying and changing behavior. Um, even though, you know, as a licensed psychologist, you get classes in behaviorism, you learn about operant conditioning, you learn about Skinner, um, just not to the degree that you get it when you become a behavior analyst. And so all those experiences are what brought you to start your own agency, right? When you combine all yeah. those, when you look at all that, like that's the, that's really the crux of what you're trying to do is make sure you're providing the services across, um, across strategies for treating the whole individual. Yes, absolutely. And I remember too, like my initial elevator speeches when I started my business as I wanted the kids that kind of graduated from ABA, but they still had some lingering anxiety or depression or other mental health concerns. I treated a lot of OCD at that time because in the traditional ABA programming, you know, we don't always focus on mental health issues, especially for private events, much harder to treat during the, you know, using a behavior analytic lens. So like that was always my favorite type of client. Um, the ones that had that ABA background, you know, they really come a long way in treating their autism, but there were still some lingering mental health issues. And I worked with a lot of kids and teens early on in my career, my business, being able to help them. And I really saw how to bring them together because like they understand, you know, we could pull some behavior analytic things that were familiar to them, but I can pair that up with more cognitive behavioral techniques or play therapy techniques and really treat the whole individual. Mm, I like that pairing. That's, a, that's, that's great. So uh, recently you wrote a book and the title of the book is Parenting a Child with Autism Spectrum Disorder, Practical Strategies to Strengthen Understanding, Communication, and Connection. What prompted you to write that book? So I always wanted to write a book and I always wanted to write a book that was written more for a parent or for like a, a lay person because I wanted the information to be really accessible. And to be completely honest, um, I would start, it was one of my 2020 goals to do so. And a pandemic mm -hmm. where you are encouraged to stay home and <laughs> quarantine yourself was the perfect reason to sit at home and write a book. Um, so I actually started, I wanna say in February, the end of February, so like two weeks before the world changed. 
and then I finished it right around Memorial Day weekend. So um, wow. it was a really quick turnaround because uh, I really wanted to get it done, but it definitely was a professional goal of mine to write it. And I always wanted the book to be geared toward, you know, parents. And so anyone can pick it up, read it and digest the information. I think that's so important. I mean, so many times, you know, whether we're in IEP meetings or whether we're doing parent education or whether we're having just conversations with parents, you know, we tend to use our our jargon and our vernacular and our terminology. And I, I feel like sometimes that just gets lost for parents, right? So so I think it's so important. And I love that you kind of put that filter on there because I want anyone to be able to pick it up and read it and know the information that we have, whether they have the terminology or not. They need to know the concepts. Yes, because what's really important is if the learner can't take in the information, they're never going to learn. So the fact that it's written in a lay sort of way and easily digestible, they can take the concept from the book. Um, the book also has a lot of really great real life examples. So I think it really helps paint a picture for someone on how a particular strategy could help their child um, because they can see the strategies being played out in examples within the book as well. Can you talk us through one of the examples? So yeah, I do have an example for you. So in um, chapter three, where we talk about embracing new styles of communication, there's a lot of talk about the different ways an individual with autism will communicate. Um, broadly speaking, you're gonna have a verbal individual or a nonverbal individual, um, but understanding how your child would communicate would really help you be able to meet their needs. Because if you're not meeting their needs, you're always gonna have a lot more challenging behavior. So one of the examples I like to give parents for a verbal individual is to try to always engage them with their interests. So when they're talking about something, when you want them to talk about something else, if you start with talking about something they like to talk about, that will get them going, that will help them feel comfortable. And then you kind of steer or parlay the conversation into maybe what you want to talk about. And then if you bookend it and end it back with what they were interested in, they start to learn that they have the ability to talk about a lot of different other things and it helps expand upon their knowledge of what they don't know yet. And they feel comfortable because they started out by talking about what they want to talk about. Because one of the you know, core deficits of autism is having restricted interests. And everyone likes to talk about their interests, so going with that is gonna be really helpful. Hmm. And then for a nonverbal individual, I actually love to encourage parents to use music and play to communicate because one, music uses a different side of your brain. Verbal language is in the left hemisphere of your brain. Music is in the right hemisphere of your brain. So by engaging the other side of the brain, a lot of times you're gonna get the individual to communicate more effectively, especially if it's harder for them to use verbal communication or they don't have the ability to. So music is a great way to express emotions. You know, playing a happy song and asking the kiddo, oh, do you, does this make you feel good? Thumbs up if it does, thumb down if it didn't. And then they can indicate, you know, a shared sort of feeling. And then through play, narrating a child's play can be really helpful. So if a child is playing with like blocks and cars on the ground and the cars are like going around, you could say stuff like, wow, you, the cars are going around the city. And if the kid looks up and smiles or giggles or just even glances for a moment, you're onto something. You're, you're giving them some words that they're probably you know, feeling, but they're not expressing. And then you can kind of narrate the play. And if you're right, the kid will continue playing and continue like kind of doing some joint referencing. If you're not right, 
they may whine or complain or shake their head no, but then that gives you another opportunity to try something else. So that's another way that to connect with your child. It's so interesting to be able to to pay attention. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, certainly some of the clients that I've been seeing and some of them are, you know, a little more withdrawn lately. That's like we talked about and, and seeing it, you know, paying attention to how their behavior has changed in other ways kind of gives us a clue into what's going on with them and what they're thinking and feeling and, and, and what it is that they either want to say and can't or don't know how to say yet, right? Um, it's just so interesting that we can find that in play. Yep, absolutely. Oh, children communicate through play all the time. It is their language and it's they're fluent in it. You know, I think as adults, we have to remind ourselves that that's how kids communicate. Um, and it's probably harder for an adult to remember that and to do that than it is for a child mm-hmm. to actually communicate through play, even a child that has autism and even a child that may have less language ability. Right. I mean, especially, you know, as you said at the beginning, right, uh, parents are carrying more than they've ever had to carry before. And, you know, when my son or daughter say, hey, daddy, can we play whatever game they want to play? My daughter likes to play baby all the time. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Can we play baby? It's like, no, I don't have time right now. I don't, you know, not right now. And then I, I have to remind myself that that's that's her really asking for time and attention with me. It's not her asking me to play. It's her asking for my attention really more than anything else. Exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. If she asks you later today to play baby, make sure you do it. Right. I know. It's a reminder for me. You know, my wife is listening. She's going to remind me of that later. Um, thank you for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> you're welcome. Tell it, Can you tell us a little bit more about the connection piece of your book? Yeah. So the connection piece. So we wanted to make sure that parents understood that you don't always have to be like a disciplinarian that you can have a relationship with your child, even a child with autism, and still feel that love and that empathy, the same you would for any other person. Um, So the connection piece talks about how a parent can use each other, like if there's a dual parent situation, or other friends or family, and family being described as anyone that's really close and special to you, not necessarily like biologically linked, to help feel like you have a support system. You know, one of the one of the analogies I use in the book that I really like is I have a family, I have a, a parent imagine a buffet with like all of their favorite foods. Doesn't matter what the food is, calories don't count, but all your favorite mm. foods are on this buffet table, right? And then you are given an appetizer plate and you're only allowed to go to the buffet table one time. There's no way you're going to feel satisfied. You're not going to get enough food that you're going to be able to eat. Yeah, surely you could try to pile it really high, right? Like multiple stories up like you see in cartoons, but that doesn't work. You know the food's going to fall over the place. But by having someone else join you, no matter who it may be, and they bring another plate, maybe their plate's a little bit bigger. They have a little bit more time on their hands. They have a little bit more capacity to carry more. Now you have two plates, and now you can get an appropriate serving of food to help yourself because you are getting the connection from other people, as well as then meeting the needs of your child, which then fosters the connection with your child. I'm, I'm visualizing that. And, and really, it's this, it's this support network, right? And it's making sure that, again, we're taking care of ourselves as a family or as a family unit or, or caregivers making sure they're taken care of so that they can make sure that they're really taking care of those in their care, right? And I I think that's true with parents, but that's also true with clinicians as well, right? They need they need to be doing the same oh, thing. Oh yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Burnout in our field is really uh, troublesome. It happens to even the best clinicians. So it's really important to always make sure you take time for yourself and you ask others for help and support when you need it. I want to go back to um, to the example that you gave, right? And and the play example. And I want to I, I want to ask a question of where play opportunities are limited. What can people be keeping in mind as they're playing socially or in, engaging socially via telehealth or Zoom or video chats with family members, with cousins, with friends? What are things that people can keep in mind when they're um, when they're playing in that kind of a format? So video games are also a great way to play and connect with other people. And a lot of video games also have like a chat feature. And I think there's like mm. Discord, uh, Discord and Twitch where you can actually talk and communicate at the same time um, as you're playing games. Also, art is a really great way too. And there's a lot of really, like Zoom has like a whiteboard attached to it where both people can draw on the whiteboard. And there's apps like Whiteboard Box where two people or multiple people can draw on the whiteboard. So there's lots of electronic sort of systems in place where you can interact and play using art. You can draw pictures, you can um, write little stories. You know, something I really like to do in therapy is I create a story with a kid. So we have to each take turns uh, drawing a picture of the story and it has to make sense. So we have to work together. We have to um, go off each other's ideas. We can't just do our own thing or the story won't make sense. So that's like a, a great way to interact and connect with another person. Um, and for a kid with autism, help them kind of stay focused and not just lean on their own interests, but to like take in the interest of the perspective of the person they're doing it with. Right. I imagine that teaches a lot of skills, right? Including paying attention to what someone else is bringing up. Because if I'm forcing my own idea or my own agenda and not listening to what you have to say or how you're adding to the story, then we're going to very quickly have a story that's that doesn't make any sense. So I, I, I'm thinking of all the different skills. It's, it's listening, it's comprehending, it's expanding on someone else's idea, it's being flexible in terms of thinking. There are probably about five or six things that you're targeting in, a, in an activity like that. Absolutely, yep. And that stuff, I mean, some of that you can do at the dinner table, right? You can, you can make up a story, you can um, start drawing a picture, you can do that. You know, I think one of the things that parents uh, think about often is I've got to block off two hours a day to make sure that I'm, you know, connecting with my son or daughter. But the reality is you can do this in a shorter amount of time, right? Is, is 10, 20 minutes a day enough? I mean, it's, it's never truly enough, but is that a good place to start? Yeah, like I love that you said that, like, because there is this kind of misconception that it has to be like a special play time and it's like, un, you know, it's locked off, it's, you know, private special time that doesn't get interrupted, but that's not reality. So a little bit of play throughout the day is oftentimes better than like an isolated hour of the day. Um, because what happens is what if that isolated hour of the day doesn't happen for whatever reason, because things come up, then your kid misses out. But if you're sprinkling play throughout the entire day and little things here or there during naturally occurring routines like meal time or bath time, or a walk to the, well, not walking to school now, but maybe a walk around the neighborhood, like then the kid's going to feel really fulfilled and have a really fun time. Um, so that's a way to kind of introduce play throughout the day. We've talked before in this podcast how addressing the parent mental health, you know, one of the ways to do that is by getting exercise. And so you can be on a walk taking care of my overall mental health and well-being while still engaging in you know, play, not not necessarily sitting down and 
playing cars or with action figures, but we can be playing in this conversation or whatever it may be. And that's still a way for us to build that connection with our sons and daughters and those in our care, right? Yes. And actually one of the activities I recommend in the book is a game of I Spy, which you can easily do when you're outside on a walk. Tell for those, I think everybody knows I Spy, but tell us for those who don't, what, what, what does I Spy look like for Dr. Knapp? Yeah. So um, essentially all you have to do is look at something that you and the people you're playing with or a person, you know, it could be one or more people playing and say, I spy, my little lie, and then you describe it. And this is really great too, because it can be adaptable. Like for younger kids, you can have more obvious things to give a, like a better clue. Like if I'm looking at a, a tree, I could say, I see something really big and brown and green, right? So hopefully a young kid would look around and see like a tree and say, oh, it's a tree. And using a tree maybe for like an older kid or maybe even an adolescent, you can say, I see, I spy at my little eye, something that provides shade. So that way, like you could also work on their cognitive skills mm. and still have fun with it. And you can adapt it based on the age or cognitive ability of the person you're playing with. I like that. Again, it's, a, it's another example of addressing so many skills through an easy game, right? An easy game that you can play in a very easy way. You can play it when you're driving safely, of course, mm-hmm. uh, on a walk. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ways you can build you know, again, you're working on language, you're working on identifying, you're working on paying attention to your whole environment and really those, some of those observational skills that really are important for all of us. Um, Absolutely. Dr. Knapp, what, what are some, you know, I imagine that some of this in writing this book, it was really a realization that you're using a lot of these in your day-to-day practice. Is that part of what's going on for you in this? Or is, is this something that you had to really focus and think differently about? So I have used or am using and will use every single strategy that's in this book. Um, So I shared a lot of stories from the past where strategies have been really successful to illustrate points. Some of the stories are very recent. Um, Some are a little bit older, but everything that I share in the book, I have used, I currently use, or and I will continue to use in the future. They're really easy things to do, and it doesn't take an advantage of you to do them, um, and it really helps, you know, an individual autism really thrive and it helps the parent kind of connect with the child. So all of the strategies have an element of connection and love to them. It's not just like pure like behavior management, like I want my kid to behave better. There's always an element of like, we call it attachment in mental health. There's always an attachment lens to the strategies. So we've talked a lot about the book, but where can we get it? Where can we find it? So you can buy the book on Amazon. Um, you can you know just search by my name, Albert Nass, and it will come up. Right now, it's the only book I wrote, so that's a real easy way in Amazon to find find it, um, and that's where it's sold. Um, it's twelve ninety nine. It's available in uh, hardcover as well as on Kindle, so that is where the book is currently available. It's the only book you've written so far. I want to throw that out. I'm gonna. I won't ask for another <laughs> one just yet, but at some point, we're gonna ask for a follow up or another another uh, inside scoop into your into your mind uh, and your practice, certainly. And where can we learn more about Albert Knapp and Associates? So they can head over to our website. It's www.akatherapy.com. Um, and that's where you can learn all about uh, myself as well as the other clinicians that are in their, our practice and the types of services that we provide. Great. And for those listening, we'll put those links in our show notes as well. Dr. Knapp, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for writing this book. I think it's such, uh, it's so needed, particularly right now. And uh, we look forward to hearing how things progress from here and and have you back on in the future. Awesome. Now, it was such a great 
opportunity for me to write the book and I love sharing with you and your listeners. I'm really proud of it. I think it's a really great book to have, really easy to read. So I'm looking forward to hearing people share their successes with it. Great. Well, thanks so much. Take care. You too. I hope you found some value in that conversation with Dr. Albert Knapp. Two things that stood out to me. One, it's just really encouraging that more and more clinicians are using family-friendly language and terminology when they're engaging in parent education or just talking about the science of applied behavior analysis. I particularly enjoyed the stories that Dr. Albert Knapp shared, and I am excited for families to be able to read this in a way that's digestible and accessible for them. You know, it's so easy for families to be turned off by all the terminology that we use, and, and it almost feels like it's a foreign language when families are first getting started, particularly with parent education. So I'm excited to see as our field evolves, more of us are using um, layman's terms or terms that are accessible for everyone. My second thought is really more of a good news during COVID situation. Um, I just want to highlight that, you know, Dr. Knapp set out a goal to write this book in 2020, and then a global pandemic happened. But it's something, uh, it's really great that he set out this goal and took this time to really sit down and write this. Uh, it's easy for us to get caught up in all the stresses that are going on on a day-to-day -day basis. But the fact that he took the time to make everyone a little bit better and make the autism community a little bit better, um, I think is really encouraging for all of us. You can always find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, feel free to send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. Feel free to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.